Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable, this is Jesus, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. We get three very, very different stories in this short passage, uh, completely different circumstances and people, but there's a unity in them. The first person we're introduced to is a persistent widow. We don't know the nature of the conflict and the dispute that she had, but she had one, and so she goes to a judge And she is persistent, and she pleads for the judge to act on her behalf. So she has a legitimate claim against someone, but in her day and age, she is powerless to create the remedy in and of herself. She needs someone else to act on her behalf. And so in desperation and in persistence, she comes again and again and asks for the judge to respond. And Jesus, as he sets up the parable, says this judge that he's coming to is not a good judge, not someone you would want to be in this position of power, not very caring. But even an uncaring and unrighteous judge, if you bug him enough, you can get him to do something for you. And what Jesus says, or Luke gives us a clue in at the very beginning of the chapter, is to say that this parable was to encourage them that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. She was persistent. She didn't have the capacity within and of herself to bring justice about in the situation that she was facing. But through constantly coming to the judge, he was willing to respond. The next person is a broken tax collector. 
We'll actually get two people that go to the temple to pray. But what Jesus highlights is the broken tax collector. Before him was the Pharisee who stood righteous in and of himself, confident in what he'd done, feeling a sense of superiority to other people. And in everything that he expressed about himself, about how good he was and the things that he didn't do, Jesus draws our attention to someone who, it says, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then in a surprising way, in verse 14, says, I tell you, this man went down justified rather than the other. Again, as we would hear this in the description of the two people, we would, our natural suspicion would be, I wonder what the guy's guilty of who said, hey, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we would just assume the best about the person who was confident in and of himself. But in a way that Jesus always does in his teaching, there, there's a twist, there's a surprise when he highlights the brokenness of the tax collector. And then the next one, even more obvious, are helpless infants. A helpless infant is brought, and it says they were bringing him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom. And not only does it belong to them, but in fact, you as adults, if you want to receive the kingdom, you have to receive it like them. The similarity in each of these three very, very different circumstances is that the people that Christ highlights to anyone listening do not have within and of themselves the power to get what they need. The first woman needs justice, but she can't bring about the justice. The broken tax collector needs mercy. But by definition, if you, if you think you can require mercy or demand mercy, you're not talking about mercy anymore. So he needs mercy, but he is totally left at the hands of God. And then what does an infant need? Everything. Absolutely everything. Food and clothing and shelter, love, compassion, mercy. And so Jesus highlights all of them, though they're looking for different things and they need different things. And to each of them, he's highlighting to anyone who's listening how in the kingdom of God, all of these people, though, matter to the God who made them. That from a societal perspective, we might sometimes marginalize those who don't have the power in and of themselves or in their family circle, or in their neighborhood, to be able to make happen what they need to happen. Jesus is highlighting them not to make fun of any of them, not to then explain how they kind of deserve to be where they are and they should just be left to the consequences of that, but that when he sees the need represented in each of them, he uses it to point anyone listening to a greater reality that the God who made us responds to our need, that he sees us in the things that we're not able to accomplish for ourselves, that we desperately need him for. And he points himself as the one who can meet those needs. That if we come to him in humility, not coming to him bragging about what we can do or what we have done or what we're going to do, but in fact coming acknowledging our dependence and acknowledging our neediness, 
that that is the very thing that the God who made us responds to. I mean, it's pretty clear at the end of verse 14. Anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In in each of these scenarios, it's the person who is in a position of need and is pleading for something that gets a response. Now, this goes so much against what we encourage one another, especially in our cultural environment, that strength, by definition, is not needing anything and not needing anyone and being able to make happen what you want to happen. And the people who exhibit that type of strength and aren't needy and aren't dependent upon other people then get exalted, promoted, and asked to do more and more things. That we highlight them as sort of the heroes and the heroines of what we want to emulate. That's not just true of our context. That's true in any context. We always love the stories of the person who, on their own, is able to accomplish what they want to bring about. And Jesus, in three different ways, just shuts that down to say, actually, if that's the way you approach your relationship with the God who made you, you'll always be on the outside of it. That's what he says. If you don't become like an infant, you won't even be able to enter into it. Not just you'll have a, a frustrated experience within it. No, no, no. You won't even enter into it. At one point, we could say, wait a minute, is he, is he being narrow and saying there's only one way to do this and he's excluding all these other people? No, no, no. He's, it, it's narrow, but it's simple. He's saying the more and more we try to do it on our own or accomplish it in our own strength or according to our own abilities, we'll miss out. His invitation to receive it as a gift gives us the freedom to let go of all of the ways in which we're trying to manipulate circumstances to get what we want. So he's not uh, someone who's, who's not being generous and saying, I only have a little bit to share, so only the very, very special can get this. He's saying, I have a whole lot. I have an abundance. I have everything you could possibly need for whatever your need is, but you have to acknowledge that you need it. You won't come to me unless you recognize that you need it. Now, in this call for humility, he's not asking everyone around them and even the disciples that are listening to them to ultimately a a negative view of themselves that they just uh, don't have any joy in their life because they acknowledge that they're needy or dependent upon other people. That's not what he's calling for. That's sometimes how we misunderstand humility, that humility is to walk around with your head down a bit like the uh, the tax collector who's gone to the temple, but in a continual basis and just say, I've not done anything good and I can't do anything good. That's not the type of humility, though, that the Scripture encourages us to. Because there's still a way, even in negative thoughts, for us to remain the center of our universe. And you've interacted with that person who's so sad about something they've done, and so guilty and so ashamed, that they still don't have any sense that there's people around them. And that there's other pain around them, and there's other good things around them. And so whether it's in our self-exaltation of, look at all the things I've done... Or, well, because I can't make happen what I want to make happen, nothing's good out there. Both of those are just two different ways of keeping us at the center of the story where everything is defined in relation to either our successes or our failures. 
That's not what's being called to here. The humility that each of these people exhibit is still a humility in the widow and the tax collector that draws them out to plead, to ask, and doesn't isolate them from someone, but in fact motivates them to do more. That's the kind of humility that's desired. A humility that just doesn't take anything for granted, that is a bit, if you will, surprised and amazed at life. And so the quote on the back of your handout that Mark already referred to, that humility is the gift to receive all things as a gift. To go out into the world and not assume anything, demand anything, but with the capacities that you have to look, to see, to ask, to consider, and to be amazed by what is available to you. Jesus is highlighting this to say to every one of these people in the story that the world might say doesn't matter because they can't do something. He says, to me, the God who made them, they absolutely matter. To drive home the point to you and to me that the issues that we have and the needs that we have matter to the God who made us. This is a poem that I came across just a few weeks ago in reading a biography. It was a book called The Best Day, The Worst Day. Uh, and it was written by Donald Hall about the passing of his wife, Jane Kenyon. And she uh, herself was a poet laureate and well-recognized in her work. One of the things that she became well-known for was writing about the experience of a, a lifelong struggle with depression. And she could speak pretty powerfully to how you view the world from a, a condition of depression. Except, until then, one day, her husband received a diagnosis that was going to require a major surgery that they didn't know then if he would actually recover from. And so she wrote this poem called Otherwise, which just describes a very, very ordinary day, but no longer from a cynical attitude, but truly reawakened to the, the goodness of everyday life. This is Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. So from the morning to the evening, just looking out on a day and recognizing that everything that could otherwise be taken for granted was in fact something to be appreciated, something to receive as a gift. She wrote this anticipating the potential loss of her husband, not knowing that she would be the one who just within a year later would receive a diagnosis from which she would not overcome, though she was almost 20 years younger than him. And so he had this published posthumously for people to see. And there he is reflecting on it as her awareness of how not to take for granted his presence and him now completely aware of how, though he thought, I'm marrying someone a whole lot younger than me, that he never should have taken a day for granted either in the experience and the joys 
that he had with her. But to look out in the world and say, everything we experience, it really could be otherwise. (laughs) There's so much that we just take for granted. In fact, in some of the earliest English translations of the Bible, uh, when William Tyndale was translating, and at great pain to himself and fear and persecution from other people saying, you're not allowed to translate the Bible, uh, one of the ways he translated, especially when he was going through the Joseph story, and there's a phrase consistently in the Joseph story that talks about, and the Lord was with him. And one of the times in his goal to make the translation as easily understandable for anyone who was reading it, he translated it, and Joseph was a lucky fellow. But he got in trouble for that. Because people said, you can't say he was a lucky fellow. We don't believe in luck. We believe in God. And we believe that God was with them. But for him, it wasn't denying that it was God who was involved. But it was trying to highlight in the most ordinary way possible that people get that this wasn't because he was the deserving one. This wasn't because he was special in and of himself. Yes, God was with him and providing for him all along the way. But at every point along the way, it could have been otherwise. It could have been different. And when you try to explain, when you get something so great and so amazing that you didn't do something to earn, saying, I I was really lucky, (laughs) is one of the best ways in ordinary language for you to acknowledge, you know you had nothing to do with that. (laughs) I just got really lucky. I was really fortunate to experience that and to enjoy that. And if think about it. If you walked out from this place and that was your primary attitude, to acknowledge that almost anything could have been otherwise, and you're one of the luckiest people in the world. That wouldn't make you less of a Christian. That'd make you the best version of a Christian you could be. The best spouse you could be, the best parent you could be, the best neighbor you could be, if you didn't assume anything or take anything for granted, but were genuinely amazed that in spite of your needs, in spite of your dependency, there are people who love you. There are people who care about you. And all of those things point to a greater reality that the God who made you loves you. And that's the last thing we see in Luke chapter 18. It's not just these three different stories that Jesus tells, but all of this reveals a humble Savior. Because the ultimate application in verse 14, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted, is not just what everyone listening is called to do. And so everyone's listening and saying, we're supposed to be humble and and not exalt ourselves. But that the Jesus who told them all of these things is the one who will humble himself. Humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in being so humbled and placed in a grave, then the Father will exalt him and give him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. It's a... It's amazing. We have a humble Savior. And that's how he tells in the, when he describes the unrighteous judge uh, back in verse 6. The Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? So he's not telling the story so that we would start thinking of God as unjust and needing to be annoyed. He's saying, if you can imagine someone getting annoyed to the point of acting on your behalf, How much more the God who's elected you, who's chosen you, 
who says that you're his, that you belong to him, that you're mine. He doesn't need to be pestered to do something he doesn't want to do. He's the one who took the initiative and said, this is what I want to do. And when the God of the universe responds in such a way, the most humble thing you or I could do is to to respond, to ask, to pray, to go to him. If he has said he's willing to save us, then pleading with him to save us is not pride, it's humility. If he has said he desires to bless us, it's not pride to ask him for healing, to ask him for blessing, to ask him for good things. It is humble expectations on our part to come to him because he's made the first move and he's made the final fulfillment in the cross. He's done all of that so that you and I in our neediness would not run from him but run to him. And no, we're not supposed to come like the Pharisee who says, well, look at all the things I've done and look what I've accomplished and how I'm better than that person. But you and I can come to him and say, but you're the one who promised these things. You're the one who made us. We didn't make ourselves. You're the one who died for us. We can't die for ourselves. But because you made us, because you chose us, because you died for us, we come, we ask, we plead, we beg. And in everything we receive, we acknowledge we're the luckiest people in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you whatever our circumstances are, whether we need a little or we need a lot, whether we just need justice like the widow or we need everything like an infant, that you have revealed yourself as good and kind and that rather than discarding us because of our neediness, pushing us aside, that you respond with your strength, with your love, with your grace. And we thank you that you were the one who was ultimately willing to be humbled and then exalted. So we pray that you would help us as followers of you, as those who claim to believe you, as those who have received the good gift of your broken body and your shed blood for us, that we would walk out into this world with no assumptions, but with humble expectations of your goodness, not our ability, that we would overflow in thankfulness and take nothing for granted that is before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.